From Vine Bears New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Friday Vine Bear Podcast. What's going on, guys? How's everybody doing? Doing well, <sighs> hanging in there. Oh, that was a sigh there, Zach. <laughs> well, no, I was thinking about this and I was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, I think, each of our travels when we come back on Monday, but I was on a train yesterday and today mm-hmm. and I, I fucking love trains. <laughs> I, I just, they're, they're such like a, okay. I think when you're... I don't think I would love them if it was a regular part of my travels. Um, like I, I respect that people who ride, you know, whatever Amtrak in the Northeast or the various uh, sort of regional rails, it's maybe more of a hassle than it like feels commuter like. rails. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But as a like rare occurrence for me, as a way to go, as I did between Seattle and Portland, it's like it's so nice. I don't have to deal with the airport. I don't have to deal with driving. I just like I don't have to be on a bus. And you like, can just show up and like get on a few minutes before too, which is great. Yeah. And like you can cut, you walk around. There's a dining car. They serve beer. Like it's great. Um, yeah. How long is that train ride? Uh, from Seattle to Portland's about three and a half hours. It's not terrible. Um, no, no. No, it's like a little longer than driving it. I mean, yes. Yeah. Does it make me depressed that the state of uh, rail travel in this country is so like bad that you know if I if we were on a similar length trip in Europe it would be like less than half the time. <laughs> um, that's also nice, but you know it's it's. It was like a, it was a perfect setup for me, uh, for this specific, uh, trip. And I just, there's just, I love, I love trains. I don't know. I like them as a rare delight in my relatively rare travels. They're easy. <laughs> I mean, they're, they are, they're just, they're yeah. easy. It'd be nice if they were nicer here. Yeah. Uh, that too. You know, but they are, we've got what we've got. Thanks. Thanks, Joe Biden. Um, I'm always saying that because you know, yeah, he's clearly a, it's all him. No, he's a huge Amtrak fan, though. I feel like if anyone's gonna like make Amtrak better, it could be Joe. Come on, Joe. It could be. Doesn't yeah, he take? It's a priority to, right? he took, for sure. He took Amtrak true, like, yes. twice a week, right? That was the whole thing. Yeah, he, he commuted to and from Scranton to. Yeah, DC he's like he's Amtrak. like the uh, first president we've ever had who's a massive Amtrak fan. Like, let's get it done, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make it better. I like trains well, I mean, too. Speaking of speaking of things we should make better. Yeah. Tomorrow. Or the, speaking, well. speaking of things that no one may be asked for. Um, <laughs> so yeah. So we thought we'd talk about uh not the rise of Amaro, but the rise of American Amaro. And you know, I've had this um question for a while now, sort of like what the ultimate goal is for a lot of these manufacturers, like and what it looks like as a thing. Um, we had a really interesting piece on the site this week from uh, Brad Thomas Parsons, where he sort of he dips his toe into this. Mm-hmm. But I thought we could dig a little bit deeper as a, just as a conversation about sort of like not not only like what's the deal with American Omaro, but like you know who do we think the audience is for it um, and where are we going? And so for those of you that are listeners who are not super familiar with just Amaro in general, right? It seems to sort of taken the world by storm over the last, you know, six or seven years, um, where, you know, it's on so many lists as the, the digestif to order. A lot of people now sort of make it part of their, their normal going out routine where they have one at the end of a meal. It's also being used in, Lots of different cocktails. Yeah. You know, people with the modern classics, right? The paper plane is probably the most famous of those, but the black Manhattan, things like that. Um, but you know, Amaro is an Italian product, right? It's, it comes from Italy. It's that it is the digestif of Italy in terms of like what it is. Now, there are other herbal liqueurs around Europe that are similar, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I've always made this joke. Like, I feel like if I blinded a bunch of, 
beverage professionals on Jägermeister and told them it was like an Amaro from like, you know, somewhere in Northern Italy. Like, oh yeah, totally. This is so great. This is so great. <laughs> um, but it's Italian, right? And every, uh, you know, every province in Italy has one and some of them are much more famous than others. The most famous ones probably now in the U.S. are like Montenegro, Nonino, um, Averna. Averna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, and then you have sort of like the, the sleeper famous ones, like the people in the know, know like, like Braulio, the one from Campania that I just, Amaro del Capo, right? They're Italian. So we don't, we don't I, consider like Campari an Amaro. So it's more of an aperitif, I think you would say, or like, but it's a, a bitter, it's, it's an, a another bitter herbal liqueur. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a bitter, but I don't think that you would drink it. But they do make, you know, I think you could consider some of their others, you know, um, their artichoke one. You could consider Chinar. Chinar, yeah. yeah. You can consider Chinar or things like that. But they, it, so it's, it is a, it's an Italian product. But what you saw over the last, you know, half a decade or more is the launch of American made Amari. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've always been so curious, like, who who are they for and what's the goal of them? Because there are entrepreneurs out there that launch tons of different products all the time in the world of spirits, and they take money, right? They raise funds. And often someone invests in you for one of two reasons, either to take a distribution down the road, which is not – that common, but people are okay with it, especially when they invest in restaurants, right? It's like, okay, well, yeah, I'm cool with my my check every month or every two months. Or they invest in you and say, like, let you go do your thing with the idea that you will sell someday. And they don't want to be paid back, right? They want to make a return on their investment. And I've always wondered, like, who who out there in the world of spirits or wine like buys an American Amaro company, like? You know, is is that something that anyone would want to own that's a larger conglomerate? Like, right, like we haven't and, seen this yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other question I wanted to have to chat about is like, do does America need America? Like, do we as a beverage community need American Amaro? Like as much as – and look, I'm I'm playing devil's advocate here. I, there's a lot of American Amaro producers that I like. Mm-hmm. But if, if you think about it, a lot of them are somewhat replicating Italian – classic Italian Amari. Yep. And what Brad's article does discuss is someone like Toby Caccini, who's very famous bartender, right? Invented the Cosmo, like thinks they're horrible. The American versions, right? They're, like it's just almost impossible to do it. Why would you try to do, why would you try to replicate what is being done very well in the country where it's actually from? And then most of them are very expensive. Yes. Because they are craft products. And so they are $50, $60 a bottle in the U.S. when you can get some of the best Amaro from Italy still in the U.S. for 20 in the $20 range, right? So I think all of that is sort of what I wanted to chat about on this Friday of like, you know, just where are we in this? And is this a thing that is maybe also only super hyper local? Like, I think, I mean, Zach, you've talked about it, right? There's there's Amari producers in Seattle because you've talked mm-hmm. about some of the brands, right? But are they just for then the local community? Like, are they just supposed to be like sort of like lifestyle brands <laughs> for, like, you know, for Seattle? Like, yeah. is that brand trying to grow to be in New York? Um, or are, you know, are are they trying to be a bigger thing that gets bought? And then like, if it were, if one of these were to get bought, like who would buy them, Right. you know? 
like I don't I could and you know I'll I'll tear off my at least one thing is I could never see Campari doing it because why would Campari, they? Yeah, and they they are like they're an Italian company in their core, mm-hmm. you know. So like they'll buy other products. I think that are you know true to what they are. So you know they bought Wilderness Trail, which is a a very good you know Kentucky bourbon. But like I don't see them buying like an American Amaro when that's what they do really well in the country where they're based. So, <clears> but then who else? Because they're the only one that actually has an Amaro portfolio. You know, it's big. So I don't know. Anyways, what do you guys think? Well, I want to say something here first, which is that one of the challenges about the American Amaro movement is that it's this very strange whipsaw effect when you have the initial rise of Amaro as a category being in a lot of cases predicated on bartenders and, and spirits pros being like, here are all these great underappreciated Italian mostly. And as you pointed out, Adam, there are, you know, sort of things that are equivalent to Amaro produced in other countries uh, in that sort of general part of Europe. But, you know, we're going to whatever, we'll, we'll limit it to mostly talking about Italy just for the sake of this. And the selling point on a lot of them was, yeah, their flavor, but also like their history, their complex recipes that reflect the like local random, cool, weird, like herbs and roots and flowers and shit that are only found in those provinces, etc. And then to come back a couple of years later and be like, okay, but now we're we're going to try and sell you a product that is, has none of that history, whose recipe is maybe an attempt to recreate an existing Italian Amaro, but here in the U.S., or alternatively, and perhaps more interestingly, an attempt to be an expression of what is you know found and grown in our area in the same way that that's what many of the existing Italian Amari are about in a way, even if it was never, you know, even if uh, expressing a sense of place was not really at the, the core of the creation of those recipes, it is what they have come to represent uh, over time. And so to say to consumers, okay, well, we just got you interested in Amaro by talking in part about the history and legacy and complexity of these recipes. And now we're going to come in with a product that has you know none of that history, none of that legacy, and is also potentially as expensive, if not more so. I mean, that's just a really tough, you know, it's one thing to say we're doing American gin, right? Gin as a category is really well established. People have a lot of familiarity with it and can be intrigued by a potential for a different or new style of gin or, you know, single malt whiskey potentially. But with something like Amaro, which has just started to find a market, it just seems, I get why people are doing this. I think some of them are just enthusiastic about the category and want to make their own and have convinced themselves that that is, makes it a viable business. And maybe for a limited amount of time it is. But I do think that fundamentally, if we're talking about it as a part of the market in any meaningful way, it's just really hard to make the argument that this category that itself is small, even when, you know, including, especially if you're talking about proper Amari, not not including other bitter liqueurs like the aforementioned Campari mm-hmm. or Aperol or things that have a bigger audience and, and are not necessarily often lumped together. When you look at that as an already small category and a small category that's growing, yes, but growing mostly with these both well-known and less well-known traditional Italian Amari mm-hmm. and to say, okay, but then we're going to piggyback off of that and try and create a product that has any more than incredible niche appeal. I just, yeah, it's like who, like <laughs> it's a, it's a flight of fancy too far for me. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, Zach. And I think, you know, a lot of these producers who Brad interviewed mentioned that there needs to be more education around the category in general. And I think so many consumers just don't know 
about Amari. Um, maybe they know them through a cocktail if they know those particular cocktails. Um, but I think, yeah, just even for Italian Amari, there's still so much for people to to know and learn about that I, I truly just think that these American and made Amaro are for nerds, you know, just yeah. like the people who like Adam, who like Amari, who <laughs> you call me a nerd now, <laughs> but like, Thanks, no, Joanna. no, but you know, like you're, you're curious enough about yeah. them to check them out and try them. Um, I just don't think that's for the everyday consumer at this point. And quite frankly, I don't think the producers of these Amari have that expectation either. I get, I guess that's I you know that's that's what I'm that's what I'm assuming is that there can't be that expectation. I feel like you know there can't be this belief that you're going to be all of a sudden like this you know thirty thousand case brand that gets purchased. I just can't see that you know I think. But then the other thing for me is that with the American Amari, like there, I, I just I do have this issue where like there's so much to still explore in Italy. We we only yeah. have. You know, only some of the most well-known brands here that like if you are a geek, if you are a nerd, like you kind of want to explore those first because those have so much history behind them. You know, these are like, mm-hmm. oh, this is, you know, the third generation of the family. Like all these American ones are a few years old. And so I think for a normal, you know, geek consumer that that also – I don't know what is super appealing about that. Um, I think that – you know, it's appealing if you sort of know who the people are. And I think a lot of why most of these, you know, we see everywhere is because like the people who make them are really nice people and they're part of usually the beverage community. And so people want to support them and like, it's really great to pour them. And, and a lot of the liquids are good. Don't get me wrong. They are good, but like, they're not as good as some of the like OG stuff and they're very expensive. And, and that I think is where, you know, I... I really struggle the most is just the, the expense of them because their craft is very high. And oftentimes they are just replicas of styles that are actually made in Italy. You know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. there's an Alpine, it's an Alpine style tomorrow, but like why we're not in an Alpine place. <laughs> yeah. There's a, a surprising lack of mountains in New York state. as a Yeah. yeah. And, Certainly near New York city. <laughs> and I get it. It's like, cause you like those flavors. Yeah. Because they are delicious from the people that are making them in those places. Like, and I don't think I've really yet to have, and if, if you're someone who listens to podcasts and you make an Amaro or you know someone that makes one, I would love to try it. Like an Amaro that's like truly like, this is the Amaro that is of New York state. Right. Or like something. local ingredients. Yes, and this tastes like it, you know, like the area. I mean, the thing about the Amaros that people love in southern Italy is that they are all so amazingly citrus-forward because that's what they have, you know? And so that is a botanical that goes into the mix. And again, it's very hard to do like a citrus-forward Amaro and make that in New York or Seattle. And we don't have citrus, (laughs) Like mm-hmm. we, we buy it from Florida, you know, like, <laughs> and, and yeah, so that that's, I just, I really do struggle with it a lot. And I do wonder like if there is a desire for any of these brands to sell because, you know, I kind of think the only way that that works is if they're able to create like a secondary product 
off of the Amaro as the base, right? If it's some sort of RTD mm-hmm. or RTS or something that actually becomes all the rage, like if someone's using their Amaro as the base to make like a bottled paper plane yep, or something, right? And then that's what they're selling. Then maybe I could see that that starts to boom, but otherwise that's hard. And so then I, it's, you know, it becomes hard in terms of the investments, like, okay, well then who's investing in it? And why are they investing? And, and maybe it is just for a distribution, but I'm, th- that to me is what's um, always been like very challenging for me to think about when I look at this category. Well, and I think it comes back to the conversation we had a while back about craft spirits in this country in general, mm-hmm. which is that it's really hard it, with the exception of, I think, bourbon and maybe to some extent other forms of whiskey, because there's such a long storied tradition of production of those spirits in this country. And there is, in a lot of cases, more legacy, uh, whether it's, you know, totally uh, sort of unbroken or not. That's the one general category where you see craft brands like Wilderness Trail pop up and be really appealing to potential investors and purchasers. Everything kind of outside of that, I think you're just kind of like, you can have a lot of local and regional success potentially, but it's really hard to imagine creating. I mean, Amaro seems like a, a particularly difficult category because of low brand or low category awareness yeah. in the first place. But in general, it's like if your goal is to be, you know, a big brand, it just seems like you are, you have to be deluding yourself. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, <laughs> I don't think these producers are deluding themselves. And like, I feel like maybe the question was asked of them and they're, they just don't know what the goal is. Is that is that like so stupid to say? Like I think they do this because that like you said, Adam, like they're enthusiastic about it yeah. and they are interested in doing it. But like maybe we didn't get that answer out of them, like what the ten year goal is or whatever, because they're just, you know, not thinking that far ahead. Maybe as a business person that's that's really foolish. But I, I would know. I would say I think that is probably true for 70 to 75 percent of them mm-hmm. this is like a this is a lifestyle business right it's a it fun allows project. right it allows them to stay in the industry they love but be a creator not the person behind the bar anymore or you know to, to lean on the relationships they already have to be this cool product but yes I, I do think in a lot of them that is not the goal but I do think there's a few brands and two of them are mentioned in the article that I do think have larger aspirations. Yeah. And I think you see that in the product line expansions. Yes. Right. Like you said. And those, and those product, and I'm, and I'm sure there are others, you know, from around the country that also have those aspirations. And that is where I struggle. Like I, I have those aspirations too. Everyone does, right? If you want to become this huge brand that then, you know, is so successful, you sell. I just don't know how realistic that is. And that's what I mean, that's what we're all saying. Like I just don't and that's what I've always been so curious about because in so and, and look, maybe this is the the really beautiful thing about this category. And this category that kind of is almost like more wine, if that makes sense, right? Is that most people maybe don't have that desire. Whereas in almost every other category in spirits, if you become a spirits entrepreneur, it is to sell the brand. Because so much of spirits is about brand building which is very different than a lot of wines, right? Obviously the big, there there are brands in wine, but then there's also 
boutique products that the person's behind it because they really love doing it and they want to do it till they die. And hopefully, like there was a quote in this article, pass it on to their next generation and they want to do it because they love it. And it's, you know, it pays the bills and allows them to have a really nice lifestyle. But like they're not accepting any offers from larger wine companies who come to try to buy their winery and their vineyards. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what maybe is is so puzzling, but you know, also interesting about this one category is it is kind of like this wine category. And actually, a lot of the people who make Amaro, at least anecdotally, right, the ones that, that we've covered before, a lot of them actually have come from the world of wine. Like a lot of them are like former Psalms and stuff. You don't have a lot of like or, – or they're chefs. You don't have a lot of like former bartenders that mm-hmm. I know of. There are some, but like that's also – like the Amaro bug seems to hit wine people first, which I think is really interesting. That is interesting. I mean – because I was I was into Amaro before I was like really into cocktails. I was into Amaro because of wine and because mm. people I knew in the wine world like that's what they were ordering at the end of a meal, and so they got really into it. And it's kind of because you can kind of they, they are terroir focused, right? Like in terms of where they're from and you know what's available in the area and stuff. So yeah, I wonder if maybe like the take from all this is like Amaro is actually kind of like the spirit that acts the most like wine. Yeah. And I think the longer it stay, these brands stay like boutique, they can continue to command those higher prices. Yeah. Right. Because the second they get bigger, you can't. You know, right. it's like, well, now you're huge and There's you're mass you, produced. Yeah. Economies of scale here. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I think that's true. I think that's very true. I think the, the last thing that I wanted to mention that I don't know that that exactly, again, kind of is obliquely referenced in this piece, but I think is is important to note here too, and, and maybe where the, again, kind of the comparison to wine makes a certain kind of sense, is that I think because of the just the sheer number of ingredients that go into producing any given Amaro batch, there is a it's difficult to maintain a sort of flavor profile and consistency, um, certainly with without a lot of experience in a way that you know, even with something that that has an infused component like gin, certainly with other kinds of distillates, it's easier, I think, to have more consistency in your flavor profile. And it does kind of mean that identifying like what exactly any one of these Amari, whether they're Italian or American, tastes like is actually a little bit of like, it's always a bit of a moving target. Um, And where I think scaling up is also potentially challenging because you know, there's, you know, I, I don't know this specifically from um, talking to producers of Amaro, but I know that talking to producers of almost any beverage that you, that tries to grow dramatically in scale, it, you know, you can't just, it's not a linear process. You don't just, you know, if you want to make 10 times as much, you don't just use 10 times as much of each ingredient. Like it's a very difficult balancing act. In the same way that like batching cocktails versus making an individual cocktail, you often have to tweak the recipe a little bit because again, for various reasons, the ratios that work in one two and a half or three ounce drink don't hold if you're making a hundred of them at once. And so I do wonder too, if one of the barriers to to growth, in addition to potentially lack of a market or potentially lack of capital is also just like a reality that the the process of making the spirit in a much larger uh, quantity might be beyond the actual technical capabilities of wherever people are making these things. And also might introduce so many more variables that product consistency and quality might be difficult to ensure at least for a while. And so staying roughly the size they're at or growing more slowly might not just be sort of mandated by the market, but also might be prudent in terms of, you know, retaining quality where it exists. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something that Toby was critical of in the piece. 
well he was critical of just people well, passing general, off but yeah not great yeah i was critical in general but also <laughs> yeah. and i do share this sentiment of like people bottling and selling their mistakes mm-hmm. as i think he kind of gets that yeah. which you know again as we talked about with craft spirits more broadly in this country is a problem that goes far beyond tomorrow like it is a problem uh, throughout this, the the industry and it, to some extent i have sympathy like it sucks to make a thing and then <laughs> yeah just have to flush that money down the toilet one way or another but at the same time it's really hard to grow as a brand when you are not able to make that or as a category when you're not able to make that difficult decision to be like this isn't good enough to sell yeah. it right just isn't right and when you like are then trying to charge that premium for it too yeah right? oh yeah. yeah like they, th- these aren't closeouts <laughs> so you know that then that becomes really hard to say yeah i would pay i would pay this again because this wasn't great and you know, I thought to pay you 60 bucks for it. So it's really interesting. Let us know what you think about America tomorrow. Uh, if you yeah, send are us your favorites, yeah, send us your favorites. If you're, uh, if you're a, a maker of them or a just consumer of them, or let us know some of your favorite tomorrows. I always like discovering ones I might not know about. So hit us up at podcast at vinepair.com. Um, and we will talk to y'all on Monday. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the vine pair podcast the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So, the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington, in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered, and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.